0: The St Emlins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsell, and I'm Simon Carley. And believe it or not, this is our first episode of season nine. Season nine. Who'd have thought, Simon, when we started this way back when, we'd be on to season nine? It's like Game of Thrones. It is. It. I mean, often it feels a bit like Game of Thrones. I've only watched a few episodes, but yes, not quite as much sex, I don't think, but just as much action.
1: Well, it's considerably less nudity, although people are listening, so they don't actually know that. But I can assure them that Ian is fully clothed
0: this time. And not only is this season nine, but we will have some significant anniversaries this year, I would hope. We will come up to our 200th episode in the next few months. And we may even, Simon, reach one million downloads this season, which would be quite a moment, I think.
1: I think so, too. It's been good fun
0: has Now, listen, people don't want to listen to us blathering on about how well we've done. Let's move on and talk about some emergency medicine. And we're going to review the posts today from the blog that is January. And Simon, let's talk first about a paper that got quite a lot of attention in the old social media verse about calcium in cardiac arrest. And Laura kindly did a critical appraisal of this paper. What did you think of it generally?
1: I thought it was very interesting, actually. I mean, calcium in cardiac arrest is something which people of our generation probably remember as being part of the guidelines many moons ago. And I think sometimes I still see it used as a last-ditch attempt or, or out of the protocol or in certain patients. And, and, you know, that might be appropriate in a patient who you think maybe have hyperkalemia. But certainly it's been knocking around as a potential treatment for cardiac arrest for quite some time because we know that calcium can be good for the myocardium. So it seemed perfectly reasonable to do a large randomized control trial, which is what these people have done in Denmark getting a large number of people over several years, randomizing them to either five millimoles of calcium in two boluses, so five times two, or placebo during cardiac arrest, all forms of cardiac arrest, and seeing what happens to them, looking at their um, outcomes, both in terms of their neurological recovery and also their mortality. So in the name of critical appraisal. Let's just go through a few of those
0: things that I always listen to Ken do on the SGM and think, oh yeah, I I should think about that. So we've got these two interventions. What were the main outcomes? Because the primary outcome measure isn't necessarily one that we could
1: describe as being patient-centered, is it? No, it's return of spontaneous circulation, which I think as an emergency physician, we often think, well, actually is to some extent the outcome, because that's what we're trying to achieve in the emergency department a lot of the time and then go on to you know, great post-resource care and stuff. But from a patient's point of view, they really don't care that much about the return of spontaneous circulation. They're usually out of it at that point. So they want to know about um, survival. And actually, more importantly than that, neurological survival. And so in this study, they looked at the modified ranking scale, which is the one that you'll see mostly used for this in cardiac arrest trials, in head injury trials, in stroke trials, things like that. And they looked at 30 and 90 days after the event to see if there's any positive or negative outcome in terms of neurological outcome. And I think that's pretty valid. The the ROSC one, yeah, fine. It means a lot to us. It's a stepping stone on the way. But the important stuff is the long-term neurological recovery.
0: And so they went on with the trial, but I read that they stopped it early. You've been part of trials. I mean, what, how does that happen in a trial? How do you, you put this together? You set this all up. You work really hard to to get it through Essex, F, ethics, not Essex. You don't want to get it through Essex. That'd be crazy. You get through ethics. And and then once you got it through ethics, they, they decide, oh, well, we, we've had enough here. Let's
1: stop. I, there must be quite a big decision there, isn't there, to get it stopped? Yeah, there is. And, and it's a really quite thoughtful process so a big trial like this and and I've, d- I've done this job in in several trials now have things such as a data monitoring committee so the people who are doing the trial so you know you and rick are doing the trial you're putting the patients in you won't necessarily know all the, the data yet because you're not supposed to analyze it as you go along because that would bias you but the data monitoring committee will meet say on an annual basis look at the data and if the trial meets some pre-specified, and this is important, pre-specified criteria, it can be stopped either because it's futile, because there's clearly no difference, because it's clearly fantastic and you know, it's outperformed and um, what we expected, less likely that you would stop it under those circumstances, or potentially that it's harmful. And there are a number of trials where potentially harm could happen. And therefore, these pre-specified points about deciding when to stop are really important. And just as an aside, if you think about things like the recovery trial, the platform trials, the adaptive platform trials, which are running now in things like COVID, they have regular DMCs to look at pre-specified criteria about when do we stop this treatment and move on to the next one. So it's increasingly something that we're seeing in papers. 10, 20 years ago, it didn't really exist, but now it is the right thing to do. And here they stopped after 383 patients. Interestingly, because not just that the calcium didn't show any benefit here, but actually there's the potential for harm. And the, the headline results really are that in terms of with that primary outcome, 19% got ROSC in the calcium group and 27% got ROSC in the saline group, which is, you know, basically means calcium makes it worse. And same so with the neurological outcomes. Positive neurological outcomes, 3.6% in the calcium group and 7.6% in the saline group. So calcium not only didn't seem to benefit, but really looks as if it's got the potential actually to be harmful so it seemed like
0: the right time to stop. That goes in the face of what I guess we'd like to think physiologically and of course important to mention that there are patients who are excluded from this trial so this does not include those with hyperkalemia and it doesn't include those with hypocalcemia does it where I think we can probably agree that those treatments are a good idea.
1: Oh absolutely I mean if you've got a specific cause for your cardiac arrest in any circumstance, not just these ones. If you if you can identify a cause, then you should be treating the cause, and that makes sense. So clearly, you're absolutely right. Hyperkalemic arrest, you would give calcium as part of the hyperkalemia management because that could potentially benefit the patient. So yes, absolutely. you still got to think about what you're doing when you're managing cardiac arrests. It's not just running around the algorithms.
0: So our conclusion from this would be that calcium, given to all comers in cardiac arrest is not a good idea and may in fact even do harm so we're not going to add that into our armory cardiac arrest is a tricky condition to manage isn't it firstly i think it's two conditions i think you've got the dysrhythmia vfvt cardiac arrest which is one type and then you've got this hypoperfusion low blood pressure cardiac arrest where we've got these patients who've just gone down the hill so steadily sometimes quickly such that now they're not perfusing their heart not perfusing their brain and and they're different in my mind. I'm sure soon we'll talk about more of these being two different diseases rather than just shockable and non-shockable, which is how we view them these days. But a lot of these were the non-shockable type, weren't they, in this trial? And perhaps you might think the calcium would encourage your myocardium to pump a bit harder. It might encourage you to manage to perfuse your coronaries a bit better.
1: But that just
0: didn't seem to work.
1: No, and to expand on your point, I always remember Cliff Reed talking in one of, the, one of his great smack talks, I think it was, about um, advanced life support being about it being life support is that we're just trying to keep life going whilst we figure out what the real cause of the cardiac arrest is and treat that because there's no doubt that the people who do best in cardiac arrest management are the ones who have a treatable underlying cause and that's what we should be pursuing so let's move on to our next post and this
0: this was a physiology heavy post and i like a bit of physiology i've got more into actually the further i've got from being in medical school The more I kind of enjoy physiology, which seems a bit strange to me. Maybe it's me searching for answers to uh, nature and human life. But it relates a bit to what we've been talking about just before, doesn't it? And I bang on to medical students about blood pressure being heart rate times stroke volume times total peripheral resistance. I must say, at least once a shift, I probably need to get it sort of tattooed somewhere on my body as a a reminder uh, to everybody what mattered to me. But this was talking about the benzoed, yeah, no. Bizold, Yarisk reflex. I mean, I think both the dudes aren't around anymore, so they probably don't mind if I mispronounce their name. But this is that reflex in trauma where you're bleeding and you become bradycardic. And Rich Carden went some way to try and explain this reflex and how it happens. And, and really, the bottom line being don't be
1: reassured by bradycardia. Yes. And I think those of us who've worked in major trauma for some time will have seen this thing happen. So you see these patients who come in. Often in my experience, they're penetrating trauma patients, and maybe there's some physiological reason why that is. Who come in with this paradoxical bradycardia, or we see the bradycardia towards the end of uh, somebody's hypovolemic state. Actually, if you think about it, what what is happening there? Because normally the response to blood loss and injury is tachycardia, and as as Rich explains, you've got these baroreceptors in the aorta which sense that the blood pressure is going down, and that drives the tachycardia forward but what this um bedsold yarish reflex i think i'm closer than you but i'm still struggling with the pronunciation definitely definitely
0: Um,
1: it talks about is there are other receptors so things like c receptors in the ventricle where the ventricles are getting smaller and getting less filled less stretched in particular and they actually have an inhibitory reflex which causes this hypotension further hypertension there's a bradycardia effect that we sometimes see in patients and interestingly can sometimes see in things like cardiac tamponade and um, for the same reasons because you don't get that ventricular filling R- rich's conclusions i think are, are bang on you know bradycardia is not a reassuring thing in the trauma patient at all particularly in, for me in the penetrating trauma patients particularly the ones who may have a cardiac injury um, and actually we need to think hard about doing that and it actually forms part of the hateful eight doesn't it Do you remember the hateful eights well, the
0: hateful eight, I have to say, is, is relatively new to me. It shouldn't be, but I've started recognising more and more recently. It's probably worth us just going through them. And this is, again, related to physiology and, and why these things happen. But So these are the signs of exsanguinating hemorrhage.
1: Yeah, so I think these came from London Hems. I think it's Gareth Davis who's talked um, most eloquently about this. So I'm going to attribute to him. If, if if that's wrong, I'm sorry, but Gareth's a great guy, so why not? Um, but eight things. The patient, and this is to look at the patient who is bleeding out, who's actively bleeding out, the ones who you really want to activate your major hemorrhage protocol for. It's not a scoring system. It's These are the things that you are getting your gestalt clues from to decide that this patient's sick. So they're pale, they're clammy, they've got air hunger, which, you know, is a sign which, you know, if you've seen enough physiology in the research room, you'll know. Got venous collapse, hypotension, a low or a falling end tidal if they're intubated, a tachy or a bradycardia, and that altered mentation, often that agitation, that difficulty to manage that you see towards the end of somebody's hypovolemic episode. If you see these in the research room, Ian, what sort of response does it give on you physiologically? Well, not dissimilar.
0: There's a sympathetic outflow here, isn't there? Uh, your adrenaline goes up, you start to get pale and clammy and then have to try and control yourself. But that's this is physiology in action, isn't it? And uh, again, uh, my poor medical students—they hear me bang on about ATP. Who'd have ever thought that twenty years after leaving medical school, I'd be obsessed with ATP? But that's what this is about, isn't it? Getting oxygen to cells to make ATP. Our body is doing all it can. It's vasoconstricting. It's making you pale and clammy. You're, you're getting that sy- that sympathetic outflow that adrenaline. You've got that air hunger, and that's an awful sign, isn't it? When you see the patient gasping for air, and you know that this isn't a primary A or B problem and you know they're bleeding that's bad and then you've got down to these yeah falling end tidal well that's just because you're not exchanging enough co2 in the lungs aren't you and it's it's physiology in action which you just want to reverse as best you can and it is simple stuff sometimes in hemorrhage isn't it stop the bleeding
1: give blood back make sure their hemostasis is as good as it can be absolutely but great post and you know even if you don't see this on a regular basis, I think it's a good read to just remind yourself of that physiological basis of what we do.
0: Now, you managed to rehash in a Journal Club post memories of years gone by for me when I did anesthetics a while ago. Uh, and you mentioned Atomidate. So, Atomidate versus Ketamine for emergency intubation, a drug that I have to say has kind of left my armory and I think may have even left our recess room. And this was a comparison between etomidate and Ketamine done in the US, well, I think. Perhaps etomidate's used more now than in the UK, but this was a comparison in a single centre between these two agents uh, for those who need emergency induction of anesthesia. What did they conclude from this?
1: Etomidate still exists in Verchester, I'd like to say, it's occasionally used. And, I, and one of the people I know who is one of the finest resuscitationists I know and who I would gladly let look after me at any time. Won't name him here to, to embarrass him. Yeah, etomidate, I used to use all the time. Fantastic drugs. Still potentially use it for some of the cardiac stuff um, that we do. But anyway, um, yeah, so RCT in the emergency department, 801 patients uh, randomised to either etomidate or ketamine. Interestingly given by a specialised airway team, not by emergency physicians, and at reasonable doses, but titrated to, the, to how sick the patients were. And they looked at the day seven survival, which was their primary outcome in their protocol, and they looked at the 28-day survival, which was also in their protocol, but a secondary outcome. Now, Interestingly, they've reported it as though the 28-day um, outcome was their primary outcome, but it wasn't. So if we're going to go back to um, what we should do in critical appraise, look at the primary outcome, the main finding of this study is that survival at seven days was better with ketamine, 85% versus 77%. And that is their primary outcome. That's the one that we should look at. Um, their secondary outcome at 28 days, they showed no difference in survival, but a lot can have happened between that um, first week and 28 days. They've reported it as there's no difference. I actually think their study clearly shows there is a difference at seven days, which is proximal to the event taking place. I think this is strength to the arm that ketamine is probably a better drug, which keeps in with other studies that we've seen. Kent, sorry, Sussex did a study uh, where they showed that their survival and their successes had gone up when they shifted from etomidate to ketamine. And I think in the UK, I think we've made the move, haven't we? I don't think we're ever going to go back to using etomidate.
0: It's amazing how we've come on, isn't it? Just thinking back to my anaesthetic time, I remember we had one anaesthetist to use ketamine and it was widely seen as being a little bit of a crazy thing to do. This is back in about the year 2000. Now it's complete role reverse. He was ahead of his time. We were all drawing up Potomidate and giving that. And there he was with his ketamine mixtures. Uh, And he was the guy who probably 20 years down the line has been shown that might have been doing the right thing. And most certainly has been doing the thing that we're doing now.
1: Yeah, I always worry about that, though, isn't it? Because medicine, so many things in medicine come and go. You just wonder whether this guy's ahead of his time or whether he's just out of phase with everybody else. So when Ketamine gets yeah. checked out, he'll be taking... I don't know. I sometimes think that in medicine because things... And the evidence changes. But we've always said in St. Hemlin's that we will take the best available evidence at the time. We know it's imperfect. We're always happy to change when we see new evidence. We're always happy to change our mind when the when the balance of probability shifts. But on this one, it's not really shifting our current practice. So we're going to stick with Ketamine. And maybe
0: when we start season 19 rather than season 9, we'll be back to something else or something different or something will have changed. But for now... Ketamine is probably the thing that we're going to use. And I think, to be fair, it is the thing that's being used, certainly in my experience and and around where I am. Our final post of the month came from me. And some, I must admit, I thought I was going to create a load of controversy here. I really did. This is me talking about ECGs on arrival in the emergency department. I thought I'd have people telling me I was dangerous and, and this was bad. I was basically trying to make an argument that we shouldn't be doing ECGs on everybody who pitches up to the emergency department and mentions the word Chest as part of their presenting complaint. And uh, it kind of all just was quite quiet. Now, does that mean everyone agreed with me or does that mean, I don't know what that means. But my argument here was that we should try and direct our resources at the point of entry where the patient arrives in the emergency department. And just doing an ECG on everybody had unintended consequences. And perhaps we should think a little bit harder about it. We've all been there in the ED, it's busy. And then all of a sudden you have an ECG and I described it as being thrust I think Scott Weingart first thought of this phrase, but the ECG thruster well, it's pushed in front of your face. And usually with the phrase, I don't know about your place, but at my place, can you just sign this ECG? And it's given to somebody who looks like a doctor. I don't think it's always confirmed the person who has it thrust at them is a doctor, but they then have to look at the ECG and something happens and they may sign it indecipherably. And they may also just put on it, repeat in 30 minutes, which is another of my absolute faves. And I just wanted people to think about what we do in the ED and whether it's worth it. Where where, where do you stand
1: on ECG thrusting, Simon? Okay, uh, a couple of things. I'll get the first one off my chest uh, right away is that the person who's doing the thrusting is usually a junior member of staff who has been told to do it, usually by people like me. So we are the people who instruct the thrusters to do the thrusting. So never, ever, ever, ever be nasty to the person who is just doing their job. It's your fault if they're doing too much thrusting. Are we doing too many? Clearly. Um, And I think the point that you take in the blog post, which I like, and it's a little bit of a different way to where I've heard it described before, is that we really need to think about this in terms of pretest probability, in that we need to think about which group of patients are the ones where this ECG that we need to get quickly seen is potentially going to make a difference. And I think that. That is the key. It's about being selective about that group of patients so that when the ECGs do get thrusted, it's not just the 47th that you've seen in the last 47 minutes. And you actually have the time and the wisdom and the thought processes to think, why is this being done? And what does it mean? And therefore, what is our outcome for the patient in doing so? The question then, of course, is then, which patients do you choose? And
0: it's about that pretest probability, isn't it? it so, physiology is an obsession with us at Emily's, or at least with me. And and then, diagnostic testing is another, I think. And pretest probability is the key to every test we do. So, if you have a low pretest probability of disease, and in this case, I think we're talking about occlusive myocardial infarction, which, thanks to Steve Smith in the US, I'm thinking more of a, in the way we term our myocardial infarctions, around STEMI and non STEMI. So if you have a patient who has got occlusive myocardial disease who may need urgent intervention, you want to see their ECG. If you've had a 25-year-old fall off their bike who's come in because they've got pain in their ribs and said they had chest pain, my pretest probability of occlusive myocardial infarction is pretty much zero. So I don't want to see an ECG. Now there are, of course, other things too. There's those electrolyte disturbances that we may pick up on an ECG that we might see early on, but Again, I think the second part of this series of just in case will involve the venous blood gas that is now also de rigueur. It comes; they come in pairs, don't they? Can you just sign this ECG and the gas? Uh, so there, there is a, a phenomenon of gas thrusting now. Yes.
1: Yeah, so and my personal, utter f- one that drives me absolutely spare is: could you just have a look at this gas? The lactate is two. Here's the fluid chart. Can you just can you prescribe two litres of Hartmann's, please? Everything is wrong about that. And it just drives me spare that we've got into this situation now where it's blood gas, lactate high, equals sepsis. And again, you might go and see the patient it's because they've run in from the department because it's raining outside and that's where the lactate's too. There's so
0: many reasons why a lactate could be raised and there's so many reasons why it may not require fluid therapy that I don't think we can quite cover in a single month, nay, a year's series of podcasts. What we we were saying is that It's really, really challenging to not do things. It takes a lot more effort to not do something than it does to do something. Now, when I was a young man, I do remember very, very vividly being asked, well, in fact, I got rung up by a biochemist at seven o'clock in the evening, a consultant biochemist to be asked, why are you doing liver function tests on this patient? I can remember where I was sitting in Selly Oak Hospital in, in Birmingham. And That's 20 years ago. Now, everybody gets everything with the idea that, oh, well, just in case, just in case. And that's what this series is going to be about, the just in case. But we probably, I think, need to think harder about why we're doing things, what the benefit is, and worry less about ourselves and, well, I feel better because I've done it and more about what the patient's benefit is from what we're doing. And, and that's behind all of this, really. What is the benefit to the patient of having an ECG on arrival? And it's not for free. That person who's doing the ECG is using the machine that could be used for somebody else. We just need to do the things that matter to the patient. And when it comes to the ECG, it's for to make a difference. And I do recognize, though, so it's easy for me and you to pontificate on a podcast and to try and make out this is easy to stop doing things, but then all you need is the one patient you miss. Well, and I say miss in inverted commas. And then all of a sudden, there's recriminations, there's worry,
1: there's anxiety, and you're back to doing it on everybody. Yeah. So I think we just need to be thoughtful about it, don't we? We need to think and make informed decisions as opposed to just blanket ones. And I think there's a, there's a lot to be said of that. Yeah, more to, more to come on this, I'm sure. Absolutely. And and if nothing else,
0: just have a think. Think about some of those things you do that you do just in case Well, actually, did you need to, or are you doing it to make yourself feel better rather than the patient? Simon, that's January. It was short and sweet, but we've gone into some nice depth there about a few of the papers, and it's good to do some in-depth critical appraisal. We'll look forward to chatting to everybody next month. But of course, in the meantime, don't forget to book in for the Arkem CPD conference. Now, even if you're abroad, and you cannot travel to the now COVID restriction free UK, you are able to join this conference online. And so you can get the benefit of these talks and there will be many, they'll be varied and it should be excellent. So please do book in for the CPD conference if you haven't already. And of course, lastly, please do like and subscribe into our ninth series. We would love our ninth ninth season. We'd love to get more people listening. We hope that this is useful and, and it's great to have you along with us. Take care, everyone.